Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, Literacy Podcast. We have, I would say, an epic guest with us today. And I am really thrilled because I listened to her on a podcast, I would say, about a couple years ago now. And I remember where I was when I listened to it. And I must have listened to it three times that day. So (laughs) I can't wait to have her on our podcast and to get to talk to her about a really important piece that she wrote. So Melissa, I know you're very excited too. Well, I think all of our listeners know that I did the letters training and also um, speech to print I have like right here next to me. So, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) Louisa Motes, she's definitely like a a rock star to me. (laughs) So I'm really excited to talk to her today. Yeah. (laughs) Louisa, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. It's fun to be here. Yeah. Would you share a little bit about yourself, what what you might like folks to know going into this podcast? Okay, I guess that I have a checkered past and that I've done <laughs> a lot of different things. <laughs> Not easy to summarize. <laughs> I guess the most important things are that I started out as a, a neuropsychology technician and then got a special ed degree, practiced as a clinician for about 10 years and and a teacher, public and private and and state settings, different programs, Um, realized I didn't know very much, Um, went for a doctorate in reading and language at the Harvard Ed School and began to learn something. (laughs) And then... uh, I was living in rural Vermont, so I had to get licensed as a psychologist. So then I practiced for 15 years or so, um, evaluating people with uh, all kinds of learning issues, but mainly reading and got involved in uh, a lot of different things in a small rural state there in Vermont. Um and then went on after that to do some huge consulting jobs. Uh, one thing led to another. I ended up directing a huge uh, NIH research program in the low-performing schools and high-risk schools in Washington, D.C. Nine schools there <clears throat> nearly killed me, but I learned a lot mm. about <laughs> how research is done about the interaction between poverty, race, education policy, um, and uh, uh, reading science, and then um, turned my efforts to the development of uh, professional learning for teachers and I've been doing that for the last 20 years. So um, letters has gotten out of hand. <laughs> In the That's best way. That's a good way. thing. Yeah. <laughs> Being used very widely, which is 
wonderful um, that it speaks to a need that's out there of yes. the kind of hunger for information and the recognition, finally, that where this country is is not satisfactory and so many states and districts have come to face the music about the possibility of doing a much better job with their students. So Mm -hmm. at this point I'm failing retirement. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, because you're here with us. (laughs) Yeah. Still doing, uh, doing work that I want to do um, Mm -hmm. in smaller doses. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. I'm sure it's very special. (laughs) I'm wondering about like, it sounds like Louisa, you know, the way you started your career path, you could have gone many different directions of of where it could have gone. And, you know, it sounds like you narrowed in on reading as something that was really important. And I'm wondering if you can just talk about like, for your own sake, like why was reading the thing that you kind of focused in on, but I think that speaks to the bigger picture of, you know, why is, why is reading just so important? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, there were two aspects of my experience. One was that as I started out doing clinical work and teaching as a so-called learning specialist, when that started, uh, the large majority of kids who were referred to me to have their learning disabilities fixed, as we thought about it in those days, had reading difficulties, which I did not understand at all. And the second thing was, I mean, not only the obvious prevalence of reading difficulties, but um, how fascinating it was to me that they couldn't learn how to spell words that had two letters in them and things like that. And I kept thinking, this is so amazing that the human brain, if something is not connecting, that this student cannot remember how to spell of or do. And it's just, it was just such a, um, a puzzle. So, um, there was that. And then, um, my life, like many other people's, has been characterized by some opportunities that were just fortuitous and serendipitous. Mm-hmm. So when I ended up going going back to Boston to work at the New England Medical Center, my boss said, look, you have to get a doctorate because I can't keep you in this position unless you're <laughs> enrolled in a doctoral program. So I thought, well, Harvard's down the street, so I'll give it a shot. I had no <laughs> idea what I was doing, but I applied to this reading program. They didn't have a learning disabilities program, so I had to do a reading program, and Jean Chaw was the chair of the department, <laughs> and I applied, and I thought, <clears throat> okay, I'll study reading. I think I know a lot, and I don't really need to know that much about this. Well, I got into the program, and it was totally eye-opening. It was like this whole new world of information that I knew nothing about, <clears throat> mainly linguistics, for starters, and then... um more solid information about cognition and learning human development. But the key for me was learning about language, the structure of language and language development. 
<clears throat> so then I could start putting two and two together. And that's what happened. Yeah. I, I'm going to be really silly for a moment here. I imagine, so we watched Legally Blonde last weekend. Mm-hmm. And I'm imagining, like, as you're telling your story, I'm just imagining someone saying to you, think you should just go to Harvard. And you're like, all right. (laughs) (laughs) And then like receiving your application, they're like, do you think she just woke up one day and said, I think I'll go to Harvard (laughs) reading school. (laughs) I mean, I was so naive. What's Get a doctorate. What's involved? Five years and a long slog and uh, just I didn't know who the faculty people were. I didn't know. I don't know. Carol Chomsky's going to teach me about language. Well, fabulous. <laughs> I think she's Noam Chomsky's wife. And yeah, she was. So. Yeah. Right. And that is where I think, right, that you, you kind of learned that we know that, well, what we know now that most students can be taught to read well. And, and, and there's a lot of, oof behind that. There's a lot of research and, and you, you learned that there. Is that right? I think what I really learned about, well, you have to remember I'm, I'm old here. So I was in my <laughs> doctoral program in the 19, starting in 1977 and there was no body of research. Mm-hmm. And what was starting to happen in the research world was very obscure, known to a few people. We began to learn about it in our doctoral studies and then and then in the conferences I started to go to. So very early in about 19, between 1980 and 82, I really started learning about phonemic awareness and phonology and the role of phonology in learning to read. The rest of the world had no idea about this. And although then in the scientific world by the mid 1980s, um, it was accepted all this information about phonological processing. Still, the body of research was relatively small. It was, it was understood and embraced by people who had the background to get it, but it, it, it came smack up against whole language, which was in its heyday in the 1980s. Um, so there, there was a huge chasm between what was happening in the world of scientific research and what was going on in classrooms. And then there were these movements and upheavals. It took another decade to start bringing the best information that was ongoing into, in, you know, sources for uh, for educators. And even then, um, it wasn't until the national reading panel, well, there was a, a, another report in 1998, um, that the National Academy of Sciences had supported, but it wasn't the same overview of all the research that the national reading panel did in 2000. Um, but those two major papers really were the impetus, that and the Reading First legislation, were the impetus for getting some better information into textbooks, into conferences, into um, some areas of teacher training, uh, into um, uh, a lot of 
effort to bring the idea of dyslexia into uh, public consciousness and begin to have some policies um, on behalf of teacher training and so on. But it's been a long, slow slog. And now it's almost amusing to me to see this, all this upswelling about the science of reading as if this was information was new. Well, I've been living with these concepts for I know, 40, for 50 so long. years. Right. And I have stacks of books and papers um, that say everything that we're talking about now, say it very clearly, very well with tons of evidence um, from years ago. So the oh. question really is why? Yeah. Why is it so hard for people to get these ideas and practice on them? Yeah. And I think one of the things that is sticking out for us now as this movement is really swelling is that the the term science of reading is tending to, and I'm speaking like broadly, especially if, you know, on social media, um, is becoming almost a synonym for explicit phonics instruction versus seeing the big picture of science of reading. And that is a little bit scary for us because, you know, we want to make sure that all of the other stuff doesn't get left behind because this is so important. And as you said, it's been a really slow go. So if now we're gaining momentum, (laughs) we want it to be like momentum for everything. (laughs) Well, good for you. Um, good for you. But you're right. Um, it's always unfortunate when you take very complex ideas and a huge uh, knowledge domain and try to label what we're talking about in a few words. And then these reductionistic responses happen and people mischaracterize what you're talking about. And then pretty soon people are taking pot shots at the term itself instead of <laughs> learning what we're talking about and doing it yeah. on behalf of kids. Yeah. It's unfortunate. I know when I hear things like, oh, well, kids aren't reading authentic texts or they're not being, you know, you don't do a read aloud if you're doing science of reading. And I'm like, where is this coming from? <laughs> and then I almost get confused. I'm like, I have to go back and read. Right. Am I wrong? Research. Am I wrong? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's very confusing sometimes. Yeah. How Which would I, you define yeah. <laughs> science of reading? Well, I always say it's a huge body of information that helps us understand how children learn to read. What's the difference between a good reader and a poor reader? And do we know something about that? And then what do we know about general principles of instruction that are going to help the most kids learn how to read um, the best that they can? Uh, So the answers to all those questions are very complicated. Nevertheless, there's enough information there to hang our hats on in terms of basic guidance and under you know things to understand about what's going on when people learn to read and when people struggle with reading enough conceptual frameworks and theoretical frameworks and research based ideas that we know there are a whole lot of things that are better than other things and then beyond that the finer points of how you actually get the job done are open to debate. And it's certainly true that there are different 
flavors of this, if you want, um, uh, where people get results, um, but the underlying principles are the same. And I can easily talk about those things and try to emphasize those things because (laughs) the disconcerting thing is that reading instruction is so far off base in so many textbooks, reading programs, classroom practices that are popular, um, aspects of teacher education. There are things that are just so blatantly in contradiction and out of alignment with what we know about how people learn to read, that those are the things we need to really replace with better ideas. And and then from there, we can quibble about um, uh, each, each of the aspects of instruction and how best to do it. And, you know, do you do phoneme awareness on your fingers or with chips or with um, mouth pictures or, you know, those kinds of things I love to talk about and have, uh, I have seen, um, seen people get good results with various approaches, but I also have firm convictions about what's really going to work best and how to, how to um, approach kids who have phonologically based reading difficulties uh, in a way that's going to open that door of insight for them into how the code works. Mm -hmm. Would you like to talk a little bit about that and share, you know, why it's so complicated and maybe a little bit like, I'd love to hear those examples that you just shared. I'd love to hear a little bit more in detail, like how this, how the research translates into classroom practice and what you've seen as things that have been successful with students. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I'm trying not to be too long winded. So I always, we don't have, mind. Okay, I, was, <laughs> this, I think, I think this is the exciting part for teachers. You know, it's like the translation of all this great theoretical re- and theoretic theories and research that you just shared. So okay. I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> let's, let's talk about this in concrete terms. Um, right now I'm doing some volunteer coaching with the, I have a dream foundation here in our community. And we have these little first graders uh, most of them Hispanic kids without very much English uh, who came into school, most of them not knowing anything, no readiness skills. Okay, put it that way. Okay, so how are we to think about these little kids? So what I have in the back of my mind is a conceptual framework for what the building blocks of reading are. And the one that I think about the most now is, is not Scarborough's reading rope, because although that's very well known and beloved and it's been very useful, it doesn't show the relationship that exists among the strands of the rope. They're all there in parallel, working in parallel. Rather, the, the uh, uh, Hoover and Tunmer model, um, they, they were, uh, they were, um, Phil Goff's 
graduate students and now have written a wonderful book on the cognitive foundations of learning to read. So they have a really nice model based on the simple view of reading. And it shows here are the building blocks of learning to read the words. Here are the building blocks of learning language comprehension. So within this simple view of reading, and that to me is, that's the only thing I think about. I don't think about executive function. I don't think about motivation. I don't think about uh, wooing the kids with fun experience. I don't think about any of that stuff. I think about, okay, the building blocks are what we need to teach their brains um, <clears throat> all about. Um, so at the bottom rung of the ladder is familiarity with letters, which these kids don't know. We have to teach them the letters. And because they're Spanish speakers, we have to be very clear about what is English and what is Spanish. So in the case of learning the letter J, um, we teach what it is in English. And then at a different time, if they're in the, and a lot of these kids are in dual language instruction, that's the way they do it here. At another time, in another context, they will learn that the letter J does something else in Spanish. But we don't confuse the two things. So we're saying this is English in this setting right here. And we learn uh, about um, listening for sounds in words. And my approach to phoneme awareness <clears throat> is, lo and behold, to give the students directly the information about what the consonants in the language are and what the vowels in the language are. And then one by one, after saying, look, there are consonants and there are vowels, and we're going to learn them one by one. And so if we start building phoneme awareness, let's pick the sound, mm. okay? So that's a good one to start with because we can attach that to a letter and begin to spell with it after a handful of consonants are learned and one of the short vowels, ah, is learned. We can start to make words. <clears throat> so we... In in doing phoneme awareness, I think what's missing from most of what people call phoneme awareness is the fact of the existence of the speech sound. And what I love about what Mary Dahlgren is doing right now uh, in Tools for Reading is that she's taken what we teach in letters in the abstract and formalized instruction around this concept that you can teach kids directly what the inventory of speech sounds is in a language. So we start with, mm, it's one of the nosy sounds and you're, you're, it, you, it's voiced, your throat buzzes and it goes through your nose and your lips are together and it looks like this and look in the mirror when you say, mm, <clears throat> and then you, Challenge the students, does this word start with mm? Watch your mouth as you say the word. And it was bat, does bat start with mm? Even though your lips are together, it's a different sound. And so on. So it's sound discrimination, sound. And then you say, um, I'm going to say a word and I want you to say it and then say the first sound by itself. 
So isolating the first sound and being able to say mm, in the abstract is very important. You uh, Kids might be able to match words and say milk and monkey start with the same sound, but then to clip it off and say mm, <clears throat> is the essential step to get to before you then say, after you've done a, a bit of this, um, the symbol we use to represent mm, is M. And that's a different approach from saying, this is the letter M. It says mm. Well, that's the way most people do it. But to me, <clears throat> that leaves the kid wondering, well, how many more of these sounds are there? And how am I supposed to remember that? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. And then as the teacher, I want the teachers, the advantage of understanding what the inventory is, is then if you get good at this as a teacher, you're going to say to yourself, well, what is my student going to confuse with mm. So I have to be mm. proactive here and come up with examples that contrast the things that might be confusable. <clears throat> and so mm is not n, mm. and mm is not p. <laughs> That's so funny. I, I'm not even making this example up, I promise. But my mom works with elementary students, um, autistic students. And she said to me, she's like, I have this one student and he confuses the sounds of the V and F. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say, I can't say the sounds because they would sound the same to me. And- Okay. Yeah. And she she was like, I just don't know why. And I was like, those sounds are really similar, mom. Like they're actually like really similar sounds. So it makes sense that he's confusing. And so I actually brought that. I was like, you know, I was like, you, like show him how you make the sounds with your mouth. And okay. then like, you know, you, you, there's like a breath of air on the sound, right? I was like, Voiceless. make sure he's like, yeah, make sure he's like making that, that breath come out. And <laughs> it was like really exciting to me, but that's what you're talking about, right? To like have that knowledge exactly. to know. That's right. So What's how many going on? Kids, teachers out there, how many kids have you had who don't know the difference between have and half? Right. Sounds right? the same. <laughs> well, and more importantly, it actually looks the same. It does look the right? same. It looks like the gesture of speech is exactly the same, except for the addition of voicing for v. So if you do letters, you learn that there are nine pairs of consonant phonemes in English that differ only in voicing. And then what we do in working with the teachers is show them lots of examples of kids whose spelling errors show us directly that this is something that the kids need to straighten out very often. They make substitutions in their spelling, uh, voice and voiceless sounds. Yeah. Yeah. This is why I like, I love the title of your article that's teaching reading is rocket science. And we, we talk, we, many of our guests have brought, brought that article up. And, um, I just think it's so like, it's such an interesting way to think about it because there's so much, like even, you know, I was just opening speech to print today and looking at like all the different, like reduction of vowels to schwa, vowel nasalization. There's just so many things like that, that feel can feel really daunting to teachers to, oh my gosh, I need to learn all these things. (laughs) It is, it is daunting. It's not simple there, you know, to have some depth of knowledge so that 
you can really empathize with what the learner is experiencing and how the learner is coming at this with their spoken language, but without an understanding of how it maps onto the symbol system, you can be much smarter as a teacher or a clinician. Now I realize that my standards are very high for what I would want a knowledgeable uh, professional to understand and that maybe 10% of our fabulous teachers out there really get to that point of expertise. But it's something to strive for because Mm -hmm. otherwise you're operating with half a deck of cards. You're you're hoping that the kid's going to get it in spite of the way they're being taught. I, I was in that position for many years, just literally hoping the student would get it because I didn't really know how to teach them. Yeah. yeah. I'm wondering See. why teachers aren't learning this in school. And Melissa and I have brought this up on many <laughs> other podcast episodes. We both have undergrads in education. We have masters in reading and we have certificates or advanced learning degrees, if you will, in uh, leadership. (laughs) And in none of those places, which, you know, really feels upsetting when you think about how much all of this cost. (laughs) Um, None of those places did we learn any of this. And it wasn't until we in Baltimore adopted uh, foundations and then also Wit and Wisdom we saw the entire thing come together and we both sat there and thought, Oh, this is, this is what we should have been doing for all these years in the classroom. And, you know, these are examples. I think the, the curriculum provided examples for us to see what, like to put everything into practice that we had been thinking, maybe something's not right in what we're doing. And maybe we haven't quite learned exactly what we need to know. And then when we, we saw the curriculum and we, you know, we did the professional learning and we worked together to learn more, it really came together for us. And so it's like, it was almost like seeing is believing. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we didn't see it in any of our years of school and it, we did go to school for quite a long time. So I, I'm wondering why teachers aren't learning this in school. Obviously the system's pretty broken, but um, I, I'd love to hear from you about, you know, why, why that might be. Well, it's something I've thought about for a long, long time, and there are many reasons. One is that this is not easy to understand, and most of the people who are teaching the courses don't know the information that is in speech to print, for example. Um, then you have a whole culture in the reading world that has been very dominated by constructivist philosophies and um, attitudes and ideas and philosophies that are just not informed by modern cognitive linguistic science at all. Um, And those are self-reinforcing and the same people write the textbooks um, that get adopted because... Um, I don't know. Um, (laughs) You would think, for example, that in the chapter on phoneme awareness, in some of these textbooks that are widely adopted, there would be some information about the phonemes. But time and again, I see there is none. 
That's what um, I was going to say in my in my grad program. I feel like I learned what phonemic awareness was. Yeah. Right? Like I learned like Here's about it. <laughs> yeah. But I didn't actually learn any, like you said, I didn't learn any of the phonemes. <laughs> you learned any substance, right. Or any right, the substance of it. that would really equip you to to get through to a yep. student who's struggling yep. with that. Right. Yeah. Yep. I remember actually, I actually ended up teaching, um, a course the year after I graduated my program, which was insane because like, what did I know? I don't know why, like, why was I teaching that course? And I remember at some point, for some reason, we were talking about the sound that the letter X made. And I was like, I literally was like, I have no idea. <laughs> like, like, what the sound are we talking about here? And again, until I like took the letters training, like I was like, oh, there's actually two. <laughs> there's actually two phonemes in X. <laughs> now I get it. Now it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, it's not obvious to people. Well, okay, yeah. so there's another reason. This is, this is the, the reason behind all of this malpractice and lack of information, and that is that these insights we have now from science into how reading actually works are not readily available from direct observation or from personal insight and you do need some background to even be able to read some of the textbooks and journals that are often technical they mm -hmm. require foundational knowledge it's like um uh you know asking people to understand surgery without knowing anatomy right. and <laughs> most or chemistry and um, so people treat reading as a, a series of activities to do in the classroom without any, uh, understanding of why certain ones are going to work, why certain ones will be appropriate for certain kids. And then, and then a last reason why this is so slow to really take root is that, uh, we have such a, a wide, distribution of individual differences. So it is true that if you are not practicing the best practices, some of the kids are going to learn to read in spite of the way you're teaching. Mm -hmm. They're going right, to which read, then reinforces which reinforces the yeah. idea that your philosophy or approach is just fine and there's something wrong with those kids. I mean, it's working for some kids. Right. So it must be okay. So why do I have to, you know, I, a third of my kids are doing fine. Why do I have to change anything? It must be the parents' problem that all those kids on the lower end haven't been read to enough. <laughs> Surrounded by books, fed yeah. vegetables. We've heard a lot on this podcast. <laughs> I'm sure you have too. <laughs> yeah. And some of the things make your jaw drop, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I, 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 you know, I know that you have been at this for a long time and I am curious about, you know, if you could just share a little bit about what is letters for, for those listening and where did the idea come from? Cause it's, yeah, we talk about cool. it all the time. We realize that like, mm -hmm. we don't often explain it. We talk about it. Like all of our listeners already know what it is. <laughs> so we always link it. <laughs> we, yeah, we always, we do, but we know we never really explain it. So, mm -hmm. you know, from, from the source, it would be great to get a little explanation. <laughs> Okay, letters actually has been in the en 
incubation and, and production stage for 40 years in my head. <laughs> uh, I think when I was finishing graduate school at, at Harvard, I realized that I had developed insights from my training there that I thought every teacher ought to have. And I began to, as I was doing consulting work as a psychologist in Vermont and running around to schools and uh, seeing what was going on in uh, and what wasn't going on, <clears throat> that the teachers didn't have any access to the same information that had been so empowering for me. So I started teaching courses at a little college in Vermont, just on the side as an adjunct. And uh, I did that for a few years at St. Michael's. And then I, and I thought, um, I just thought, okay, I've got to design some courses that reflect this understanding about language and reading that I gained and um, so those courses found a, a lot of subscribers and teachers wanted to take them and they got a reputation. Then um, I continued teaching the courses in the summers at this little school in Putney, Vermont, Greenwood Institute in the summers. So I did that for six or seven years and we had <clears throat> intensive summer courses where I taught the what what has turned into um in in one week the first volume of letters as it exists now <laughs> and in the second week the second I can't even volume imagine. of letters as it exists now. <laughs> and we were in a hot classroom me and between 20 and 25 teachers um who came to Vermont uh, from Sunday night to Saturday morning learning this stuff and it nearly killed people, but I was going to say they yeah, must have been exhausted at the end of that everybody. week. Yeah. yeah. It made them learn the phonetic alphabet. And things like that. And I met some of my dearest colleagues who now they were lead letters. They became lead letters trainers. So that all went on. And then in 2001, I was looking for a new job after the Washington DC project. And for, uh, the Sopris West Company hired me to write materials that would be based on all the work I had done so far. So that was the formal beginning of letters 20 years ago. <clears throat> and one thing and led to another. I know. <laughs> now we it's are. all over. We have something I mean, like 200,000 teachers. Oh, my. That's amazing. Them, That's great. Unbelievable. We see all the time. I mean, we're we're seeing in different you know, state uh, states. I will. I'll speak to Maryland because I've seen locally. Um, you know, my dyslexia, my uh, decoding dyslexia chapter is advocating for our school district to have all teachers trained in letters. I know that that's something that is not unique to our space here, but it is. I mean, it it just. I, you know, I had someone ask me the other day, like, do you think that it would be appropriate to to say all teachers in this? Yeah, if, if I'm writing this for our county, all teachers. And I said, absolutely. Every single teacher, because <laughs> mm. I'm going to bet they didn't get it in undergrad. And it would, I mean, if we're going to shoot for the moon here in this request, like 
let's shoot high and ask for everyone to be trained. And I, I, I'm so excited, Louisa. I can't wait for, for every teacher in the whole world to be trained in letters. And I also would love to see something for parents. If you're taking requests, like, (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Okay. Well, thanks for the prompt. I I may very well do that. She said Um, she wants to retire. (laughs) We can help you if you need help. (laughs) Yeah. Something for parents. Um, 20 years ago, Susan Hall and I wrote a book called straight talk about reading. Um, We need something like that, but maybe, uh, I don't know. I'll give that some thought. Okay. Give it some (laughs) thought. Yeah. But no, it's just such good work and we can't thank you enough. You're just changing, changing the landscape of education and and reading for so many teachers and students. So we're lucky to have you. Well, thanks for all the work that you're doing because it's (laughs) all people like you are spreading the word and who are doing podcasts and articles and um, using social media, which I don't do well at all. Um, <laughs> again, I'm, I'm waiting for my 10 year old to get old enough so she can just do it for me. We're not great. We try. We're doing okay. <laughs> we're subpar. <laughs> the one thing I was going to ask about letters, I actually just saw this yesterday, which is interesting on, on Facebook, on social media, someone asked about letters training. I forget what the exact question was, but someone responded by saying, Oh, letters is a program that you implement. And someone else quickly was like, it is not a program. (laughs) And I just thought that was an interesting, I think that that gets confused a lot. I think even in Baltimore, when we did the letters training, people were like, wait, but we have foundations. So like, what am I supposed to be doing? Am I supposed to implement letters? Am I supposed to implement foundations? Um, Can you just speak to the like, what, what is the purpose of letters? Because I know it's not a program. Yeah. No, it's not. We, we do not have the tools for teaching kids. We don't. That's not what this is. It's the background knowledge of the content and the process of teaching that should enable a staff, first of all, to evaluate prospective program purchases and to mm-hmm. put their money where uh, the, the work is well designed. But also, you have to know so much to make the decisions day in and day out about individual students. You have to know what kinds of educational diagnostic uh, tools to use and what you're looking for and how to formulate um, goals for instruction. Um, you have to do that in the regular classroom. You have to do that in in the resource setting or tutorial setting. And so it's, it's the knowledge base for being able to do this. So at the same time, I'm very well aware that implementation, well, in during letters now, we have these bridge to practice activities that are built in Mm -hmm. to help teachers immediately try to apply what we're teaching with their own students. But the tools I use uh, uh, will be the tools they have in their classrooms that they have to um, adapt and uh, uh, apply. So in your case, for example, if you have foundations and you have wit and wisdom, that's a very good combination uh, but foundations um, can be poorly implemented. Foundations also can be 
better implemented when the teacher knows more about how to enhance what's in foundations with richer attention to speech during instruction and also with an understanding of how the various activities and elements fit together and why and what you're looking for in terms of fluent application of skills and all those things. So just having the program is a necessity. You have to have something to teach with, but implementing it is going to be greatly enhanced if you have the underlying knowledge I, of, I of love that. process. Yeah. I always, I, I, I get like fired up when I see people who are like trying to do one, like, like, oh, just get curriculum and you'll be fine. Oh, no, no, no. Just training, right? Like if we just train the teachers, you'll be fine. And I'm like, why do we have to argue about this? The two together is what we need. It's not either or. <laughs> right? I don't know why it always has to be one side or the other. <laughs> like give yeah. the teachers what they need. They need both of those. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Well, speaking of, I'm wondering if we could briefly talk about um, some of the pillars from your from your teaching reading is rocket science, knowing the basics of reading psychology and development, understanding language structure for word recognition and language comprehension, applying best practices in all components of reading instruction and using validated, reliable and efficient assessments to inform classroom teaching. I love these pillars um, and the two that struck me the most for our conversation today. And I'm hoping you're okay with, with me kind of focusing us on two. Um, the, the first would be understanding language structure for word recognition and language comprehension. I'm wondering if you might be able to speak a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, where do I start? Um, I know, I know. I was thinking, should I prompt her with a question? I was like, I just, (laughs) I mean, what it means is, can you explain a word to, can you explain any word? Uh, to a student who's new to that word so that they'll remember it. So they'll have a a way of hooking that word into their memories, um, its spelling, its pronunciation, and its meaning. Do you have a way of making sense out of the word? Or are you the kind of teacher who has to just point to it and say, that's blah, blah, um, and pray that it sticks behind the eyeball somehow. The way we remember words is by having some insight into the match between the sounds and the symbols and being able to recognize the patterns in the print. So you have to know what those are uh, and being able to recognize the uh, meaningful parts that are represented in our writing system. So we say phonology, orthography, and morphology. And then to some extent, word use and syntax is reflected in the writing system, especially with um, suffixes, for example, and some spelling patterns that are related to the part of speech of the word uh, in our language. So if you can explain, if a student is coming across a word, Well, what I do is think, okay, what's in this word that needs explaining? Is it morphologically complex? Is it a common or uncommon letter pattern? How does it correspond to the sound in the pronunciation of the word? And then you 
decide. Uh, do I need to explain it with uh, uh, a reference to word origin? I get emails from people all the time, and it's lots of fun to have those <clears throat> conversations with people. Like, why is this word spelled this yeah, way? Why is this word spelled <laughs> um, From <clears throat> one of the teachers I'm coaching here in Idaho. What about the word soul, S-O-U-L? It should should I teach O O U as a, a correspondence for the sound O? <clears throat> and so what goes on in my head? I think, well, first of all, is that part of a word family that has some kind of recurring pattern? No, it's a total anomaly. So why is it an anomaly? <laughs> then I want to ask, well, why is it an anomaly? So then I go to Edim Online, which is the etymology dictionary. Where did this word come from? It is so old. It comes from the oldest layer of uh, Anglo-Saxon through a number of changes in the English language. It goes back to Proto-Indo, whatever it was, that you know, our language of uh, original language from which the um, Proto-European, I'm not getting my term, terminology right here, but anyway, the parent language. So it's just an anomaly. And you can tell kids, this is so, this word is so old, <laughs> like a few others that are so old that the pronunciation of the word has changed so often that the spelling pattern is unique. It doesn't match mm-hmm. the way we pronounce it now. It's now, not so- tool like soup. Right. I know. I was like, yes. sour. <laughs> yeah. And then I was trying to rhyme words with with soul, right? Like what, what's the right. spelling pattern for those? O-L-E. I'm almost wondering if like the, when you shared how you thought about it, I was, I was kind of translating it like this. And I'm, I'm wondering what you think about this. I was thinking, what do I as an adult know about this word? Or what could I find out about this word that a child wouldn't know that would like, it's almost like, what is, what am I inferring or or asking this child to know without them actually knowing it yet, right? And then I'm going to be the one to fill in all of those gaps. But thinking about myself as an adult, what do I know that they don't know? And that would help them fill in those gaps. Is that like one way to think about it? Well, sure. That's a very good way to think about it. Um, I think that makes it really manageable for me, you know, instead of thinking mm -hmm. like, (laughs) it's kind of like a a curious, like, okay, let me take a part and explore the word as an adult. And what do I know? And now what do I need to teach them? Yeah. And hopefully it it sounds as if, you know, quite a bit, (laughs) that would be useful for them to know. I just think it's, it's like you, you know, like you just shared that example and it's so much fun even in, even as an adult to I hear know, that and I talk about it. like, I didn't know that all of that about the word soul. I could have made some guesses, but I love the um, etymology dictionary. I recently found that a colleague shared that with me and it's so cool. So <laughs> we'll definitely link that in the, uh, the show notes, but it, yeah, it's just so fun to be curious about this. And i I think, you know, even sometimes what you think, you know, you may not may not know. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, can I ask one thing about that, though? Because I think some people will hear that example and go, Oh, gosh, like English is just so complicated. 
like all words are like soul. So why even bother teaching, you know, the, the patterns? <laughs> because every like there's always an exception to the rule. Well, <laughs> um, I, yeah, I love to disabuse them of that faulty <laughs> notion. Right. Because <laughs> half of the language can be spelled just by knowing sound symbol rules. Another 34%, this is an old, old study that did a computer analysis, and it's quoted a lot. So another 34% can be spelled with one error just using sound symbol rules, and that error is usually on the vowel. Um, But then you add on to that everything else that we use to explain orthography. So it's um, the letter order patterns, uh, constraints on letter use in particular positions in a word. And a lot of this is teachable. Um, uh, Word meaning and word origin also help explain spelling patterns. So you add Mm -hmm. add all that up. And I I think that our language, a lot of it, most of it can be explained, not all of it, some of it has to be learned as uh, arbitrary, uh, just arbitrary words. Um, but the, knowing the patterns, <clears throat> being able to see the patterns, is helpful in remembering <clears throat> the individual words. Excuse me. Yeah. <clears throat> um, the, um, it, it, but still, there there is a mechanism in the brain that requires us to learn individual words as they are spelled and used and to store them in our mental dictionaries. So we do use our knowledge of the regularities in the system to remember individual words. And that's where the process can break down for a lot of people is that whatever that mysterious mechanism is for remembering exactly what is in the words spelling and its relationship between spelling meaning and sound um the people with reading difficulties don't quite connect all of that with with um accuracy and that undermines fluency Hmm. You know, sometimes I've I've caught myself reading recently, just, you know, reading a book. I'm actually reading Bridgerton right now. So (laughs) juicy juicy stuff. No, we're going to need a review on this. I will. (laughs) (laughs) But I find myself reading it and I'll just like pause sometimes and I'll go, I can't believe I can read so quickly. Like there's so much going on in my brain. I can't believe I can do all that so fast. (laughs) It is miraculous. When you think about it. It really is. Yeah, there's so much going on. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) I know. I think that that's where it feels like almost like a little mini miracle when you teach kids to read, you know? It is. Exactly. (laughs) It's very special. Um, I also, I would love to, I know we, our time is, you know, coming to a close, but I would love to chat quickly about the other pillar that stood out to me from from your piece, which is using validated, reliable, efficient assessments to inform classroom teaching. So I'm curious if I'm a teacher listening to this podcast, because we have a lot of teachers who listen, and I'm thinking, 
Lisa, what did you mean by that? And maybe if we could kind of dissect the idea that the validated, reliable, efficient assessments may look different, will look different for foundational skills versus like reading comprehension. Oh, sure. Um, We don't have to get like crazy into it, but, um, you know, just kind of touch on that. And then like, how would we use this to inform our classroom teaching? Because it looks very different in the foundational skills space versus mm-hmm. the reading comprehension space. Yes, that's so. right. Okay. So in the foundational skills space, I uh, think back on my model of based on the simple view of reading of what these building blocks are. So I want to know whether each of these building blocks is in place on the word recognition side. I want to know, do they know their letters? Do they know, uh, can they <clears throat> do a phoneme awareness inventory? Uh, what happens when I ask them to spell? What happens when I ask them to read word lists under timed and untimed conditions? And to use decoding skills to decode unfamiliar words. So I want to know all of those things. And I want to know um, how well <clears throat> those skills are applied in text reading. So I want to do passage reading, um, a timed passage reading for accuracy and speed. Um, and then on the language comprehension side, it's much more difficult to, uh, to do meaningful assessments there. But for example, one of the tools that I think is well designed is by Acadiance, Acadiance reading diagnostic and their diagnostic on vocabulary reading comprehension that gives you a lot of, of, um, different tasks, um, uh, in the verbal reasoning and, and language use domain to get a feel for kids, um, uh, not just vocabulary, but ability to understand word relationships and formulate sentences and um, uh, higher level language skills. So you do want to know those things uh, and use educationally relevant materials to do that. Can I ask one question before we head to like the other side of it? Mm-hmm. I'm hearing you say timed, timed passage and t- like a timed passage read. And I'm imagining, you know, maybe a teacher out there listening who's new to the science of reading and, and, and understanding all of this and, and might be wondering what's the difference between something like that and a running record. And, you know, in my district, maybe we have running records and, and how is that different than what we're talking about here? Would you be able to explain that? Yeah. Well, in a running record, you're supposed to code the errors that students make according to uh, whether they're visual semantic or syntactic well that whole coding process is not validated by anything and it's been there a long time i understand but that kind of error coding not only is fairly uh, quite unreliable depending on who's doing it but also it doesn't have any relevance for what you're trying to do um I did learn it in my undergrad or I'm sorry, in my master's program. I did. I mean, just to name that, right. That, that, that things that are not research-based have no backing are being taught at the collegiate level. I just always try to name it for like those listening who are like, that's good. Really? (laughs) Yeah. And there's a really good example of the disconnect. I have never seen a reputable study 
conducted by scientists who know their methods and statistics and research design to use a running record as um, a measure, a valid, reliable measure in a research study. So that should tell you something. Um, what does have validity, uh, that is, it is a useful measure of what is really going on as a student's learning to read is speed and accuracy on a timed passage that is graded for difficulty. So that's built into um, a cadence, it's built into um, FastBridge, it's built into AmesWeb, and those passages are carefully calibrated, and there are um, rigorous studies around what the data mean uh, if you're trying to evaluate whether a student's making satisfactory progress or not. That's helpful. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, do you have anything else to add to the um, the assessments? Because I'm I'm thinking about I'm a classroom teacher, and maybe I'm a third grade teacher, and I am using some of my my assessments to inform my teaching. And I'm maybe in small groups. I'm supporting students in filling in some gaps in their decoding, and then. You know, I'm, I'm thinking there's other students who who have this already, and they don't need that help. And um, I'm looking to maybe impact their reading comprehension a bit more. Mm-hmm. But you know, we're maybe thinking about how to transition away from uh, a, a reading standards or a reading skills uh, in co- terms of comprehension approach to to working with students in that way. Do you have any thoughts on how like assessments could? What, the, what those assessments could look like and how we could use those to support those students? Um, well, students who can already read, who, who already have the foundational skills and who need to improve the, the, their familiarity with more complex and challenging texts, they need to deepen their reading skills and have, um, and I have to be careful in my terminology here, but what I would hope would happen is that those kids would be in a small group where perhaps they are all reading the same text because they're able to read that text. And the teacher is leading them through a critical reading experience where they look for layers of of interpretation or they they conduct layers of interpretation of the text they learn to summarize they learn to ask questions of the text and they deepen their reading skills through that shared experience what i don't want to happen and what is happening way too much is those kids are put off by themselves or stuck on a computer and told to go read something by themselves on a computer and answer questions about it. So they're sort of out of the teacher's hair. Well, their joy of reading and their experience of sharing a reading with other students who whose reactions should be shared and talked about, that's being missed. 
And it's so fundamental to developing a critical reading habit, uh, which we don't do as well when we're just left on our own. Most of us want, if we're reading a good book, we want to know what did our friend think about it? What did our book group think about it? I'm in book, I'm in several book groups because I want that experience of uh, sharing our reactions and discussing what we read. It deepens the experience. It makes me think about things I didn't think about. And the kids really need that as well. Um, So I applaud teachers who are staying with that tried and true um, um, shared reading, real shared reading, and know how to lead the students through a critical reading of a text. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for naming that. I think that's so important to, to talk about and discuss and be honest about, you know, that I, you know, I'll be, I've, I'm always very honest on this podcast and my daughter's in a classroom where she is sent to, um, unfortunately her district has not shifted yet. And, um, she's in a classroom where she sits for 45 minutes or more at a time and, and does read independently books that are not, uh, being read by anyone else to my knowledge. And so I'm her book club, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I'm like, what are you reading? Let's read it together. And mm-hmm. I mean, I'll read alongside her in my free time or at home, or sometimes we'll listen together if I can get it on audiobook or, um, you know, we'll read, we'll read the book aloud together. We'll have lots of different methods to do that. But, you know, I also will say like, I'm a privileged parent who knows that information and that's mm-hmm. not you know, the, the norm. And, um, yeah, everybody trusts that when we send our kids to school, the job is being done and it's really, sometimes it is, and sometimes it's not. So I think it's really important to name what you just shared and to have these honest conversations about what's happening in our classrooms. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah. Well, like Lori said, we are running out of time, even though we could talk to you all day and spend a whole week with you learning mm-hmm. yeah, this has been <laughs> such, language. Such a treat. <laughs> it really has. Um, we do ask um, our guests to to leave one piece of advice before we go. So I know I don't think we warned you of that ahead of time. So I can, <laughs> I always say I can just chat a little bit while you think. And <laughs> um, but yeah, any advice that you might have for teachers or I know you you said in I'll I'll actually read a quote from your article because I loved it. You said, to be clear, although the day-to-day work is teacher's responsibility, students' reading success is our shared responsibility. Um, and you go on to say, like, from prep programs to curricula to professional development. And um, so your your advice doesn't have to necessarily just go to teachers, is what I'm trying to say. It could go to the mm-hmm. bigger world. <laughs> well, I guess it's, I just want everyone to continue to champion the cause that without are doing better. Um, there's still going to be too many kids whose lives are going to be limited if they haven't learned to read well enough. So this is the most fundamental thing that we need to keep in mind as we strive to do better as a profession. Uh, reading is a civil right in my view. Mm-hmm. It is the key for our um, less advantaged kids. Um, and we all as professionals need to keep learning and doing a better job. 
be more effective with more kids. And let's own it and face it and do it and enjoy the wonderful results that we get when, when we work hard at it. Absolutely. Thanks for all you're doing. Yeah. Thank you. This is so such a treat, uh, a, a true honor to be able to talk with you. So thank you for taking time to talk with us and we are just so grateful and thank you for all your good work with letters and everything, all your, you know, everything that you've ever done in your career. Thank you for that. <laughs> yes. And, and we hope you enjoy your retirement a bit too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, Literacy Lovers. We release a new podcast episode every Friday and share more resources in a newsletter on Tuesday. Sign up for our newsletter at literacypodcast.com. Each week, you'll receive important information, resources, and connected content. We're excited to create a space for community discussion about our podcast. We want to connect with our listeners and support you in answering your questions. But we also realize there are a lot of other educators out there who have great advice and experience too. Let's keep learning together in our Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast Facebook group, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If the content in this episode helped you, share with a fellow educator and teacher friend. Our Literacy Lover community welcomes educators at every stage of their learning journey. We're so glad you're here to learn with us. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast in this episode are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds PBC or its employees.